To another quarantine episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Let's start tonight by taking a deep breath and taking a second or two to be glad that Donald Trump is now the first president to be not only impeached, not only to have been defeated in the popular vote, not once, but twice, but also to be among our ignominious one-term presidents. He has, in fact, hit the hat trick. Um, Obviously, views and opinions are my own, but I personally think it's very good. And the reason I think it's very good is a lot of things. But one of those things is science and the environment. Um, and so Trump has been kind of terrible on uh, the front of science support and science understanding and science as a word, practically. <laughs> um And so I'm looking forward to science hopefully once again being thought of as a respected profession where people who are scientists actually know things about what they're studying and that that information can indeed inform the presidency and the way that government works. So I'm hoping, we don't know yet, but I'm hoping Uh, So we definitely cannot rest now. The incoming administration will obviously have to be watched carefully. We cannot let them slide on the idea that they are simply better than Trump. Slime molds are better than Trump. And slime molds are not fit for government. Slime molds are actually pretty darn awesome. Uh, so I definitely, if you've never looked into slime molds, I definitely recommend it. They're very interesting beings, um, or organisms, I should say. They're not really beings, I don't think. Okay. So speaking of pretty darn awesome, it is pledge week here at Valley Free Radio, and we could definitely use your help. Now, obviously we all know pledge drives aren't necessarily awesome, but they are necessary. The programs here on VFR, though, are indeed pretty awesome. We're adding new shows all the time. We just added a hip-hop show, Temperatures Rising, Sunday from 11 to 1, and a new alternative show, Alternative Lately, meant to showcase lesser-known and -and up-and-coming artists on Sundays from 9 to 11. And so if you want to help out, you can go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. We are once again being supported by the Dow family. We'll get $10 for each individual who donates. And we're also going to get a direct match of the week's total up to $5,000. So please help us again by going to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. Now, before we get into things tonight, uh, I do want to remind everyone that COVID-19 is currently surging, and so we need to be very, 
very vigilant and continue to practice strict social distancing, mask wearing, which we know for certain is helping to slow down the spread when used properly. I know that the holidays are coming up. I unfortunately um, have just had to cancel plans with family across the uh, state because my husband and I felt that it was not safe to travel and be around people, um, especially people who are older. And so unfortunately, we'll probably be doing a virtual Thanksgiving this year. Um, and that's unfortunate, but it's the best thing for our loved ones because there is no scenario in which we want to be responsible for spreading COVID in any way. Um, and so please do keep COVID in mind when you're making plans for the holidays upcoming. I know it's very, very disappointing, but hopefully uh, there is actually good news on the horizon for a potential vaccine. Um, Pfizer's vaccine seems to be performing pretty well. Um, it's not a sure thing yet, but I think that we will see something happening within the next um, several months. Certainly by the spring, I think we will probably have something that is being distributed. So definitely do take care to um, continue to be vigilant for now until that vaccine is available. Okay, so tonight we're going to do uh, our standard sort of potpourri and uh, talk about some of the different stories that we generally feature here on EBR. Let's start with a couple of stories about historical inks. Fascinating. It actually pretty is. Um, so first we're going to talk about an analysis of 12 ancient papyrus fragments, which have allowed researchers to decipher how Egyptians created their red and black inks. Now, writing in Egypt goes back to at least 3200 BCE, but these samples are dated from around 100 to 200 CE and were collected from the only large-scale government-sponsored library which survived from the period, the Tebtunis Temple Library. And so the researchers used a variety of synchrotron radiation techniques, which involves using high-powered x-rays, to analyze microscopic samples in order to discover the elemental, molecular, and structural composition of the inks in great detail. By applying 21st century state-of-the-art technology to reveal the hidden secrets of ancient ink technology, we are contributing to the unveiling of the origin of writing practices, says physicist Marine Cott from the European Synchrotron Radiation Facility in France. Now, the red ink, used mainly for headings, instructions, or keywords, was most likely used creating was most likely created using okra. And so traces of iron, aluminum, and hematite suggest the use of this ancient pigment. And so okra 
has actually been used by humans since the earliest days of prehistory. It has been found on and among the remains of our most ancient human ancestors. So it's a kind of red clay-based pigment. And um, yeah, it's, I remember taking a course in um, art, uh, art and architecture, um, a MOOC actually a couple of years ago, um, from a instructor at MIT. And one of the first things we talked about was caves where ochre had been found with ancient, very ancient human remains in South Africa. And so it's really interesting how ochre has continued to be used throughout history. And so they also found traces of lead-based compounds that were not used for pigmentation, but rather for more technical reasons. Lead-based dryers prevent the binder from spreading too much. When ink or paint is applied on the surface of paper or papyrus, the team writes in their study, Indeed, in the present case, lead forms an invisible halo surrounding the ochre particles. Now, what this suggests is that the dryers not only helped the ink, the ink from smudging, but it also suggests that the ink was part of a complex formula. This in turn suggests that the creation of the ink would have been an artisanal craft with specialized creators. The Egyptian priests who created the papyri were probably not the same individuals who created the ink. The fact that the lead was not added as a pigment but as a dryer infers the ink had quite a complex recipe and could not be made by just anyone, says Egyptologist Thomas Christensen from the University of Copenhagen in Denmark. We hypothesize that there were workshops specializing in preparing inks. This idea is actually backed up by mentions in a Greek document from the 3rd century CE, which actually mentions the creation of red ink in a workshop. The trick was apparently rediscovered in, the 15th, in 15th century Europe with the rise of oil paintings. And so we know for a fact that a lot of oil paintings from that time uh, have lead in them and are therefore sometimes a little bit hard to work on because they're full of lead. And we now know that lead is not a good thing. Um, there is no safe level of lead uh, in your body. Um, obviously, small amounts are not nearly as hazardous as larger amounts, but um we all are well aware by this point that lead is not a good thing to have in your system. And so you have to be really careful working with these ancient documents and works of art because they do contain this lead, which works great for what it was supposed to do, but again, is very bad for you. And the research highlights just how much there is still to learn as we develop new techniques for analyzing objects and substances. The advanced synchrotron-based microanalyses have provided us with invaluable knowledge of the preparation and composition of red and black inks in ancient Rome 
and Egypt 2,000 years ago, says Christensen. Now, before we move on and talk about another ink mystery solved, let me once again remind everyone that this week is our pledge drive week, and therefore... I would like to ask you if you would be willing to go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate and donate if you can. I know this has been a rough year for a lot of people, but if you can spare even a few dollars, your donation will be amplified, not only because we'll receive $10 for every individual who donates, but again, the entire amount we receive will have a matching, will have a matching fund up to $5,000. And so Valley Free Radio relies entirely on donations from the community to keep the lights on and the signal ringing out. Remember, valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. We use 100% of the funds to operate and upgrade the studio and to provide needed supplies. For instance, we've been deploying a lot of cleaning supplies to help those who wish to use the studio at the moment. Uh, and to give them the ability to help prevent the spread of COVID. Um, and so we have absolutely no paid employees. Everyone is either, either volunteers their time or volunteers, uh, a donation in order to be able to be a part of the studio. And so we really rely on our biannual pledge drives in order to make up the majority of our operating budget. And of course, I think that it's really important to remember that we are a unique service um, and we are very much committed to the community and we are very much interested in new and underrepresented voices and we just really rely on the community and we hope that the community enjoys the work that we do and has come to rely on us as well. And I think that's true. I think we've had some really great support over the last few years and we just need to keep it up. So, uh, one more time, it is valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. Um, I might've said.com at one point. Uh, it's definitely .org. Um, it's so, it's so easy to get that wrong. Uh, so, let us move on now and talk about medieval blue ink. This is a kind of ink that has remained mysterious for hundreds of years until it was recently deciphered. Vivid blue medieval ink was created in part, some of them, I should say, were created with a main ingredient called folium or turnsole, which is derived from the fruit of the crozophora Tinctoria, a small plant that grows on the side of the roads in, in southern Portugal. A new study in the journal Science Advances outlines how folium was synthesized. Now, even the plant from which folium is derived was not actually named in these medieval texts, but was able to be identified by detailed descriptions of it in the texts. And so the Portuguese researchers relied primarily on a 15th century guide for creating paints for illuminating manuscripts. We've tried to mimic them, reading ancient texts, says Maria Juan Mello, a conservation scientist at the, at the New University of Lisbon and co-author of the study. 
part of our expertise is to make this con this conversion from what is actually written and sometimes not so clear enough for us and what they're making. And so it was folium and indigo, which were the main sources of blue pigments in medieval times. Once formulated, the ink would actually be soaked onto small linen rectangles, which were then distributed and sold to workshops across Europe for a variety of uses, including dyeing clothing and creating illuminated manuscripts. And so if you've ever seen those an illuminated manuscript, some of those pigments are just stunning and continue to be stunning, even though they are hundreds of years old. And so tracking down just how the ink was made, though, has, as noted, presented quite a challenge. They had many different sources for how it was made, but none of them went so far, again, as to name the plant from which the dye was derived, and different sources suggested different ways to make the dye. And so the team were able to consult a book whose title literally translates to the book on how to make all the color paints for illuminating books. <laughs> but there was another layer of trouble. The book is written in Judeo-Portuguese, which is now an extinct language. But once they were able to translate the text, they were offered many clues. It says how the plant looks, how the fruit looks, it's very specific, also telling you when, when and where the plant grows, when you can collect it, says Paula Nabes, a conservation scientist at the New University of Lisbon and the study's lead author. We were able to understand what we needed to do to collect the fruits in the fields ourselves, and then prepare the extract. And so they did just that. They went out into the field to collect the hairy plant's walnut-sized fruit from the southern town of Montserrat. And so they had to be careful not to crush the seeds, which can jeopardize the quality of the ink. And so once they got them back to the lab, they were able to confirm that folium is a compound close to aranthocyanins, which are the chemicals in berries which cause them to turn blue. Now, the research can be not can be used not only for conservation work on medieval manuscripts, because if you can create an ink that is close to the original, that's really helpful um, in able to do restoration work, but it can actually also teach us a thing or two in the modern realm. And so it turns out that this is something that we're not great at these days. They were able to produce plant paints that lasted centuries, she says. We don't have such paints now. So this is part of our research, to know as much as possible about this material that was completely lost with the advent of the synthetic dyes. And that's a big thing. Um, so... I always talk about the famous uh, story of mauve. And so we think of mauve as kind of a pale pinky purple. But when it first came out and it was the first, it was actually the first synthetic uh, pigment to be created. When it first came out, the color was a deep purple. But the problem was, is that it didn't last. It actually faded quite quickly. 
Um, and so there are some, uh, objects that have the original color that you can still see because they were maintained. I think it's probably they were in a, um, in some sort of container that didn't expose them to light, uh, such as a trunk or something like that. And so you can still see objects that are the original color, but most things that were dyed with the original, uh, synthetic mauve color have faded to that kind of pinky purple that we associate with it now. Um, and so it's really interesting to think about that because there are other probably um, objects like that where they used to be one color, but because of time and chemical reactions, they've changed colors. Um, and so it would be great to be able to figure out how the the medieval uh, artists were able to create these pigments that actually did last. Because when you look at a lot of illuminated manuscripts, ones ones that have been well-preserved, it looks like the often the paintings look like they could have been done yesterday. And they were done in the 14th and 15th century. Um, and so I think that's actually a really cool example um, of something that I talk about a lot, which is that a lot of times we think that everything we do is progressive and sometimes it's not. Um, sometimes we think that we've figured something out and it turns out that people before us actually knew a better way of doing it. And that's one of the great things about studying the past is to find out all of the different ways that people did things. Because sometimes you might find out information that you didn't know and that had been lost to time because it had gone out of favor or the last person who knew how to do it died without telling anyone, um, you know, or the people who understood it were wiped out by some other people. Uh, you know, there are a number of ways in which knowledge is lost through the centuries. And the nice thing is, is that we have developed a lot of techniques in order to be able to figure out what is going on with these um, objects and these dyes and these other mechanisms by which people in the past made things using ultra high tech technology. Um, and so that's something that I am really excited about is being able to apply new technology to, um, old objects. And that's actually, uh, if you ever look at an archaeology, an archaeological dig, people usually will leave parts of archaeological deal, uh, digs absolutely pristine. And that's because archaeologists understand that every time they pull something out of the ground, they are starting a degradation process. Every time they disturb soil, they are doing something destructive. And so that particular bit of the dig can never be properly recreated. And so they always try to leave parts of a dig untouched so that later generations who have better technologies can come back and perhaps find out new and different things about the site because they have better techniques and better technology. Um, and so that's a really important part of archaeology is to leave those spaces 
empty for other people to come and eventually explore. Okay, so uh, we are getting towards the halfway mark, but I do want to remember to remind you one more time uh, that it is Pledge Week here at Valley Free Radio. And every individual person who pledges, even if it's just $1, we will receive an extra $10 um, per person, uh, not per donation, per person. And again, at the end of the week, we will get a matching grant up to $5,000. And so you can go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. And again, we have no paid employees. We don't have any sort of overhead in that respect. Every dollar goes to getting new uh, equipment for the studio, upgrading equipment, making the space better for people to be able to come and perform live. Um, hopefully, we'll do a lot more of that when we get back um, into the regular mode of um our lives generally, um, and to making our auxiliary studio more accessible and to have better equipment and just generally to keep literally the lights on and the signal, uh, going. And so again, every little bit helps valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. Okay. We're going to take a break. And then when we come back, we will be talking about, um, actually, we're going to be talking about spiders for a second. Um, it's going to be about pigmentation still, but if you uh, have an issue, uh, this is a trigger warning that uh, after the break, I will be talking about spiders for a few minutes. Okay, so uh, stay tuned and I will be back in just a bit. You are listening to Evidence based radio table of contents is a weekly music program that assembles an assortment of songs and sounds of many genres and which may entail literally taking a random collection of musical sources off the shelf and giving them a turn on the table or spin in a cd or tape player each week presenting shows which can at times be organized orderly and at other times perhaps be not as much so yet never dull Tune in Friday nights, 10 p.m. till midnight on WXOJ LP, Northampton 103.3 FM. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ, or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. The Forbes Library staff would like to remind you of the incredible resource that you have in your local public library. We have tens of thousands of books for you to check out, music CDs, movies, newspapers from around the region, the state, 
in the country. We have a wide variety of magazines and free computer and internet access every day. We also have our incredible reference services there to help you answer particularly vexing problems. All of this is free, locally available at 20 West Street in Northampton. So come by and check us out in person or at www.forbeslibrary.org or call 587-1011 for more information. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive, factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So tune in for Civil Politics, Friday evenings at 7, here on Valley Free Radio, or anytime at civilpoliticsradio.com. And we are back. You are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. And if you are just tuning in, I do want to give you a trigger warning that I am going to be talking about spiders for just a minute. So please uh, take note. All right. So we've been talking about pigments. So now let's slightly move to talk about researchers who believe that they can now explain some, at least, of the bright hues of tarantulas. And so these large, hairy spiders, which apparently are often very, very sweet, uh, according to people who own them, um, lots of people love them and enjoy having them as pets. So they can't be all that bad unless you have a phobia, which I know a lot of people do, and I don't want to discount that. But they actually can be quite colorful. They can have blue, green, purple, and red hues in addition to the standard sort of black and brown. Now, what was interesting is that these spiders are crepuscular, which is a kind of fancy word for the fact that they're most active during twilight. And so this meant that scientists weren't even sure if they could see each other's uh, quite lovely hues. And so a new study suggests that tarantulas can indeed see color just as well as daylight-loving spiders. And they even think that the spiders, that they have discovered the function of two of the colors, green and blue. Now, humans have kind of terrible color vision at night. Uh, so it's not surprising we would think that other animals might share that, uh, that defect. Uh, and so it's not really a defect. Our vision is prioritized for other things rather than discerning, uh, different hues of color. Um, and so we're much more interested in movement and things like that. Um, because we, are interested in making sure that nothing eats us um, <laughs> and also that we can find things to eat. But um, generally, color is not great at night. Um, I'm sure that you've noticed that, um, that when it gets 
darker, it's much harder to see different colors. But some animals, such as geckos, moths, and bats, actually have strong color vision, even in very low-light conditions. So the team studied photos of 37 genera of tarantula from around the world. They then measured the spectrum of colors, noted specific behavioral traits, and mapped their evolutionary history. Now, though we don't quite know exactly how well they see color in the dark, the researchers discovered that they have many types of opsin genes, which code for the production of opsin proteins, which are found in photoreceptor cells and help animals see color. Despite their crepuscular tendencies, tarantulas express a considerable diversity of opsin genes, a finding that can contradicts current consensus that tarantulas have poor color vision on the basis of low opsin diversity, the team explains in a new paper. They actually found that tarantulas have almost as many opsins as those found in daylight active spiders, such as the tiny but absolutely, frankly adorable, if you don't mind spiders, uh, colorful peacock spiders. They then tried to see if there was any connection between color and three parts of tarantula behavior. Stridulation, which involves rubbing their mouth parts together to make a warning noise. Urticating bristles, the hairs which they can shoot off to irritate would-be predators. And being arboreal, or living in trees. They actually found no correlation between color and either stridulation or urticating bristles, but they did find that green coloration cor correlated positively with tarantulas who live in trees. The evolution, the evolution of green coloration appears to depend upon the presence of arborality, suggesting that it probably originated for and functions in crypsis through substrate matching among leaves, the team writes. So, uh, crypsis is, of course, hiding. <laughs> uh, it helps them hide and blend in with their surroundings. So, that explains green. But what about blue? Well, there's always the old standby explanation. If archaeologists have its ritual, biologists tend to have its about mate selection. <laughs> While the precise function of blueness remains unclear, explains Carnegie Mellon University biologist Seorsi Foley, our results suggest that tarantulas may be able to see these blue displays, so mate choice is likely is a likely potential explanation. And so that's not wrong. Um, it's just funny because that does tend to be kind of the default idea if you can't find a better reason. Um, that doesn't mean it's wrong. Uh, a lot of times it's probably spot on, um, but it is... Uh, interesting to note where there are commonalities in different fields like that. And so this is actually kind of interesting um, and reveals something really unique, though, even though they can't tell you everything that's going on. It turns out that evolutionary evolutionary blueness has been lost more times than it has evolved in tarantula species. And in contrast, green has only evolved around eight times, but once it develops, 
it sticks around. This makes tarantulas really interesting from an evolutionary uh, standpoint. And so there, it suggests that they should do more research to figure out exactly what's going on here and uh, look at more parts of the evolutionary genome of these animals. So yeah, okay, we are going to move on now. And we are going to talk about uh, what I hope is a fan favorite, octopuses. But I do once again want to, sim- to simply remind you quickly uh, that if you can, we would really like your help. And so if you go to valley dot, valleyfreeradio.org and, uh, or valleyfreeradio.org slash donate, you can donate this week. And that will be really, really helpful. Um, again, we are dependent on contributions from the community in order to keep the station running and to help us to keep, main, keep maintain, and upgrade our uh, equipment in the station. And so... A lot of what we have going on in the last couple of years has been supported by the Dow family and, um, they're, they have been and continue to be really good people. Um, unfortunately, we lost Catherine Dow this year, um, the matriarch of the family. Um, but Mike is still very active with the station and is still, on uh, civil politics, if you ever want to check that out. So again, valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. Okay, let's move on and talk about octopuses, specifically their arms, which literally have minds of their own. If you aren't aware, the brains of octopuses are distributed such that there is a sort of donut-shaped brain in the head Um, but two-thirds of the nerve cells are actually distributed throughout the arms. Each of the eight arms, again, arms, not tentacles, is often mistaken. Uh, Tentacles are actually a different uh, part of the anatomy. And so they can explore the seafloor, searching for and grabbing tasty prey, such as crabs, without having to really distribute that information to any other part of the octopus. And so researchers have now identified specialized cells unique to octopuses, which allow them to sort of taste with their arms. These cells allow the suckers along the arms to both experience touch and taste by detecting chemicals produced by many aquatic animals. Harvard University molecular biologist Nicholas Bologno and his colleagues report in the journal Cell that this ability may help the arms to quickly distinguish food from rocks or poisonous prey. There was a huge gap in knowledge of how octopus actually collect information about their environment, says Tamar Gutnick, a neurobiologist who studies octopuses at Hebrew University of Jerusalem, but who was not involved in the study. We've known that octopuses taste by touch, but knowing it and understanding how it's actually working is a very different thing. It's really exciting to see someone take a comprehensive look at the cell types involved, he said. 
And so knowing more about how the octopuses are able to taste with their arms is an important step in understanding the evolutionary development of these unique creatures and in understanding their intelligence. So as mentioned, they are quite unique. Uh, a lot of people talk about them as being virtually alien, which is, of course, silly. They're definitely uh, terrestrial uh, animals, but they are weird. So the researchers studied the California two-spot octopus using detailed imaging to identify what they believe to be sensory cells, some of which feature fine branched endings on the surface of suckers. They then isolated the cells and tested their response to a variety of stimuli, including fish extract and pressure. One class of cells were analogous to cells which detect, which detect touch in a variety of other animals. But those that reacted to the fish extract contained receptor cells that are, so far, unique. After inserting these receptor cells into human and frog cells using genetic tools, they found that the only class of molecules which elicited a response were insoluble terpenoids. Now, terpenoids are natural compounds found in the bodies of many marine creatures, and they may be involved in defense. Bellino was initially confused as these compounds don't dissolve well, so they wouldn't have dissipated into the surrounding water. But then he realized it might be possible that this actually makes sense, since octopuses move by touching, by touching everything, it might make sense to have specialized terpenoid detectors in order to alert the arm that there is something which should be grabbed or something it should avoid. And so they found that this was actually true when they did experiments in the lab. And so they actually took some octopuses and put them in tanks. And they, the octopuses explored surfaces free from terpenoids with broad, sweeping arm movements. But once the octopus made contact with a surface infused with a special type of, ta of terpenoid, it would either stop it stopped and would either quickly tap the spot and move on or immediately withdraw from that area and avoid that part of the tank for basically the rest of the time it was in the tank. It's not quite clear exactly what's going on, but it's definitely an indication that there is, in, that there is sensory information being processed. We equate it to taste by touch just so that we can sort of understand what it might mean to the octopus. But it's very different from our taste, Bellino notes. The lab is now looking into other compounds the sensors may detect and explore how receptors might be turned to respond to different stimuli depending on the octopus's disposition, such as, for instance, how hungry it is. So if the octopus is just eaten, do those signals register the same way? Or is there a gradient of some or some mechanism that tells the octopus, at this point, you don't need any more food um, or anything like that? Um, again, octopuses are still really weird and we 
still don't know a lot about them. Um, they're amazing and very cool, but they are really unique. And a lot of their evolutionary uh, development is literally unique um, to octopuses and cephalopods. Like they're very different from most of the other uh, animals that we study. And so it's always cool to find out more things about them. Okay. Now, once again, uh, I do want to mention uh, that this is Pledge Week. Um, we really, really, really count on the community, which is why we uh, sort of do this as much as we can uh, during our shows, because this is how we are able to keep VFR running. Um, I would be very uh, unhappy if I could no longer eventually go back to the studio um, and be able to do my show live in the studio. I love being able to do that. And um, the only way that we can continue to do that, the only way that we can keep all of the electricity on and the rent paid and everything like that is through community um, support. And so again, valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. And um, please be a part of our community. Um, Obviously, if you can't, we understand. But if you can, again, even a dollar, a dollar will translate into $11, which will translate into at least $12 uh, with the additional matching grant. And so, um, yeah, it every little bit helps. And um, I think that it's really important for us to be grounded in the community. We don't take any money uh, from corporate interests. We don't take any money. We don't have any government grants. Um, the only thing we have is we do have some members of the community who provide underwriting. But again, those are local businesses in the community. They're not, you know, giant corporations. We're not um, funded by Cargill uh, and things like that the way that uh, PBS is nowadays. Um, because, of course, we don't uh, value uh, public institutions enough in this country. But that's a that's a hobby horse for another day. Let's not go there. Um, but let me just thank you in advance. Um, if you have been listening and you are planning on donating, thank you so much. Um, I really enjoy uh, VFR and the people I've met there. And they're people I would have never met had I not joined the the radio station. Um, and if you want to join the radio station, um, you can go to valleyfreeradio.org and you can apply to become a programmer. We still have spots that, that can be opened up and we still have, uh, you know, we're always welcome to people pitching new ideas and becoming programmers. Uh, we love that. And I love that. I love the diversity of opinions that I get to uh, interact with when we do that. So yeah, definitely, if you're interested, please do do that. Okay, so we are going to move on now and talk about 3D printing, but not any 3D printing, tiny 3D printing. 
Researchers at Leiden University have 3D printed a tiny boat. A 30 micrometer copy of Benchy, the tugboat, which is apparently a famous 3D printer test object. It is so small that apparently it could, quote, float down the interior of a human hair. The boat is an example of a microswimmer, a microscopic organism or object that can move through liquids. Unlike natural examples such as bacteria and sperm, the tiny Benchy propels itself with a chemical reaction between a bit of platinum and hydrogen peroxide. It's a bit of a it's a bit special because the Benchy model is specifically designed to test 3D printers because it has an open space in the cockpit which requires a lot of precision to create properly. A laser is focused inside a droplet that locally hardens in the focal point of the laser, said researcher Daniela Kraft. By moving the laser through the droplet in a controlled way, we can write the swimmer shape that we want. Because the print is taking place inside the droplet and we are printing layer by layer, we can maintain the open space. Now, What I think is extremely cool is not only did they choose this model because of its intricacy, but they also did it for another reason, because it was fun. And I think that that's such an important thing to uh, be focused on sometimes, is that you want to be having fun. You don't want to be constantly doing things that are dreary. And so when you have a chance to make a tiny boat, um, (laughs) when you are testing out your 3D printing process, why not? Why not make a tiny, tiny boat? (laughs) Okay. Um, Once again, valleyfreeradio.org slash donate. Uh, if you haven't yet, and if you have, again, thank you so much. Um, all right. So we are now going to move on and talk about glowing blue tardigrades. And so a new species of tardigrade has been discovered that glows blue to protect itself from ultraviolet radiation. This is the first experimental evidence of fluorescent molecules used to protect an organism from radiation. Tardigrade's tolerance for stress is extraordinary, said Sandeep Eswarappa, a a biochemist at the Indian Institute of Science in Bangalore, India. But the mechanisms behind their resistance is not known in most species. He and his team studied a new species of tardigrade from the genus Paramacrobiotis, which the researchers discovered actually on a mossy wall on the campus, which I also think is very cool that they just found them kind of in the area that they were uh, working. And so after growing a colony in the lab, they subjected the little water bears uh, to 15 minutes under a germicidal UV lamp. Now, this is enough to kill most microbes. It's used to uh, disinfect a lot of places. Uh, Hospitals use it, um, all sorts of things. So it kills a lot of microbes. And that's actually enough to give a human a skin lesion because UV radiation is bad for you. However, the tardigrades were unfazed. They weren't 
they weren't affected pretty much at all. And so uh, the team was not able to figure out what was going on, how they were able to do that until one day when they viewed a tube of, sadly, I have to say, even though, you know, there's millions of them out there, so it's not really all that sad, um, ground up tardigrades in a UV uh, trans illuminator. So they had a tube of ground up tardigrades and they put it into this device, which is used to me- to measure fluorescence. Um as they were working in the lab. And so to their surprise, the test tube actually started glowing blue. It was our mini eureka moment, Eswarappa said. Fluorescence is caused when molecules absorb higher energy light and release lower energy light. It had previously been suggested that fluorescent pigments might shield certain animals, such as comb jellies or coral from UV radiation, but the effect had not yet been observed in the lab. They found a variety of intensity of the fluorescence in the tardigrades, and they actually found that it correlated to their resistance, such that those who glowed the brightest were the most resistant to UV light. So what they did was they put several um, of the tardigrades uh, into a um, into some sort of container, and uh, they actually placed them for an hour under this UV light. Um, and so after an hour of the exposure, sixty percent of the strongly pigmented individuals survived for more than another month, <laughs> while their less strongly pigmented cousins did okay, but they mostly died within 20 days. And so they then tested the pigments by submerging roundworms and non-blue glowing tardigrades in a bath of the paramacrobiotis extract. But, uh, And so it turned out that the animals were actually more resistant to UV rays, just like the tardigrades, than individuals immersed in simple plain water. The experiment clearly showed that the pigments are, quote, a mechanism for UV tolerance in these animals. And that's a nice step forward, says Paul Bartles, an invertebrate zoologist and tardigrade expert at Warren Wilson College in Aston. Asheville, North Carolina, who was not involved in the study, but again, tardigrade expert. That's very cool. And in fact, he says, it's a really cool study. <laughs> um, and so the team was surprised at their discovery, um, but they believe that the pigment may absorb UV rays and emit harmless blue light, though they're not exactly sure how and exactly how that allows it to uh, convey resistance to the tardigrades. And so it may turn out that the glow is just a byproduct of the pigments and not involved in the shielding process, but there's clearly something going on there because there is clearly shielding that is happening, especially when they did that second step where they took other organisms and put them into the um, into the uh, pigment solution, and it conferred resistance to them as well. Um, but Eswarappa actually suggests that the glowing pigment may help tardigrades in southern India survive the summertime where UV levels can be quite high. Um, yeah. Uh, 
Southern India is not exactly known for its uh, cold weather <laughs> and rainy days. Um, Southern India is very well known for being very hot, uh, very sunny, very dry. And um, so these guys have probably developed this UV protection uh, via um, fluorescence in order to help them survive that because they basically develop anything and everything they need to survive. Um, again, they are crazy, amazing animals that can live in the vacuum of space with no harm at all. Um, they can be irradiated <laughs> with UV light and walk away like nothing happened. Um, they're pretty amazing. Um, and if you want to be as amazing as a tardigrade, uh, you could make a donation uh, to Valley Free Radio. So go to valleyfreeradio.org slash donate and make your contribution today. Uh, every little bit helps. Again, even a dollar will help. Okay, that is all the time we have for tonight. Uh, I will be back next week with more quarantine-based, evidence-based radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.